What's up, Asymmetry? This is Ira filling in for Ryan on the intro. Had a chance to sit down with Ryan and Joe Robinson, the owner and proprietor of East Creek Art. They helped us fire the Triscally Pots last year. You might remember hearing about them a little bit. We had a great conversation. Ryan and Joe really connected on their shared experience of building a community, both uh, the tie-ins and connection points between trees, ceramics, art, and teaching. Uh, lots of good stuff, some funny moments as well. Hope you guys enjoy. Sit back and relax. Joe Robinson. Hello. What's going on? What's up, Joe? You guys weren't late. Oh, uh, well, I thought I, I thought I we were going to be was, late. I certainly was late. Yeah, I got to own that. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, uh, he was in Wyoming working frantically on Bonsai the past day and a half or something. So he got in nice. late, late, late. See, I, I, I like you're like an you're like an artist and a business person at the same time. So you 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 can manage both sides of that equation, which is admirable. Yeah, well, and if I had no grace for people being late, operating a pottery kiln an hour and a half from a major urban center, it wouldn't work. <laughs> there have been people that have been literally a full day late. They they'll show up. They'll be. It's like you were supposed to be here yesterday at this time. Like, oh, sorry, I'm late. What? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. We're gonna use that as, as an example next time we're running late. Yeah. I feel like you just like, opened the late, door for like, us. You don't even know. Yeah, oh, in pottery, you could be up to twenty four hours late, and it's still just late. <laughs> and everybody's like, "Oh, cool. No worries." Yeah. yeah. That's just that's just glad you're here. Welcome. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's just Jenny. Jenny runs late a little bit sometimes. You know. So does uh -huh. Michael. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's cool stuff. I'm glad to uh, glad to glad to get get connected here with you guys and and do this i'm in a i'm in our bunkhouse so you're out in the remote wilderness of oregon where is uh east creek uh so east creek is about 60 miles southwest of portland as the crow flies or directly west of salem in the coastal mountains uh we're about nine miles north of the town of willamina uh also known as timbertown usa uh, this is, uh, it was actually originally the town was a brick making town. And, uh, so like all the cream colored bricks that you see in downtown Portland came from the Willamina brick plant. And, uh, there were special bricks here because the clay in this area along the Yamhill river, uh, is some of the stronger, hottest firing clay that's in the region. And that makes for strong bricks. And so that's what brought the railroad here. And when the brick factory left, the um, Hampton Mill came in, and so there's about a mile-long sawmill that sits along the railroad tracks that the brickyard brought in. Wow! Wow! Now, did you did you grow up in that area? Uh, no, you know, I uh, grew up in uh, you know I started off in Portland, and my family moved to uh, to Lake Oswego during my uh, elementary years. So I graduated from Lake Oswego High School in Portland. Uh, area. And then I went to Linfield College, now Linfield University, which is in McMinnville, and is the closest uh, uh, undergrad institution to East Creek. Uh, and uh, when I was there as an 18-year-old freshman, my ceramics professor, Nils Liu, had this really cool kiln and place. And so I went out to check it out, and that was uh, East Creek. And, uh, you know, I kind of got hooked and throughout my undergraduate career, I would spend, you know, three or four days, I would disappear. My roommates like stopped worrying about it, you know, because I would disappear <laughs> for days on end. You know, and there was no like cell phone, you know, there was no, you couldn't, there's no internet here. There's no connectivity whatsoever, not even a phone. And so I would just go away and they'd be like, oh yeah, that's Joe doing his pottery things again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, but you were studying art and ceramics in college or were you studying business in college? Well, uh, you know, actually both. I uh, have my BA in art and business. I was a double major. Okay. Uh, you know, so I had kind of one foot in each department, although uh, the my foot that was in the business department was a pretty weak foot. Uh, they were kind to uh, allow me the flexibility to focus on my art stuff. And, you know, I, I, there was some business classes that I probably missed more than I 
than I should have. <laughs> Missed <laughs> more than you cool attended. Oh. I was like, I was missing it. I, it wasn't like I was missing it to like go to Cancun. Right. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh well, I'm I'm sorry, I'm missing class because I'm doing this ancient pottery tradition with a professor. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a little bit better excuse, even though it was super fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're like, criticize me for this. I dare you. Like, yeah. Yeah, and, then, and and the pottery professor, you know, Nils, uh, at the time was in his 80s. He was, a, you know, an, a tenured professor in his 80s. So he would just say and do anything to anybody, and he didn't worry about any blowback. So, if, you know, if you needed a, uh, needed a, a hand getting out of class, he would just go over there and talk to whoever was teaching the class. <laughs> and he And he had the trump card of seniority as basically – well, that and also he he would just uh, you know he was uh, he was a kind of a, a charismatic guy with a twinkle in his eye, mm-hmm. and he would talk his way into things and he would uh, make fun of people ruthlessly, uh, and that was uh, you know important. <laughs> nice. Is nice. that the same kiln yeah. that's still there? The big Onagama. The big onagama was the um, idea that Nils and Tom Coleman and Frank Boyden originally pioneered in 1983. Yeah. Wow. So they, when you say they pioneered it, they conceptualized it in 83 or they built it in 83? Well, they started conceptualizing it. So I think Nils uh, had bought the East Creek property here in uh 1979 and you know he had been in willamina he you know there was like wheels were in motion and um he and tom and frank actually went to peters valley new jersey and they um visited another kiln that had been built there the uh a, a couple years previous and that they were inspired by by seeing that and they decided that they should begin the work to try to make that uh, happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I guess uh, pioneered is probably not the right word. It's probably more like uh, conceived of the project and began its construction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. I think of uh, anything that uh, happens in Oregon before I was born as like pioneer things, even though that's a stupid way to think <laughs> about stuff. <laughs> Pre-Joe, that's a P. PJ. Pre-Joe, must have been Pioneer. I don't even know if they had uh, the wheel back then. Yeah, probably not. It'll be PJ and AJ, right? Pre-Joe and after Joe. Oregon will never be the yeah. same. Well, you know, they say everyone's the star of their own movie. <laughs> that's that, that that is that's hilarious that you say that. Yeah, yeah. Recent experiences with some of that thematic. That's great. So, yeah. so do you live out there? Do you live out in the woods? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I live in the woods. Uh, I live with my partner, Aubrey, who's the president of the Oregon Potters Association. She's a potter, too. And uh, we have a two-year-old. Nice. Uh, We live together in a 400-square-foot one-room cabin with a lofted bed. So, you know, we definitely have embraced the rustic woods cabin lifestyle. We would like to have a bigger house, but it hasn't been in the cards quite yet. Right. Um. But yeah, you know, I've been living out here uh, full time since uh, 2017, and before that, you know, I bought the place in uh, 2015 in quite a state of disrepair. And uh, you know, so before that, I had been uh, living in uh, Portland and in San Francisco doing like corporate marketing work, mm. um, you know, which was kind of the source of the credit and business vernacular that was required to in- initiate this this project that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a tran- what a transition from San Francisco corporate marketing to 400 square foot cabin in the middle of the woods with no connectivity. That would be I would say pretty polar opposite. It was pretty polar, yeah. And you know, in San Francisco, I lived uh across the street from the Giant Stadium and uh I was in this building and the same building that my apartment was in was the most expensive restaurant in North America, this restaurant called Cezanne. And uh when I moved back, uh I you know, I was only down there for about nine months working on a um a project bringing a new business online for uh for a, a health company. And when I moved back, I had some renters in my little cabin, and so I stayed 
in the bunkhouse, which at the time was in a real estate of disrepair. And I remember getting back from this, um, this time in San Francisco in this really expensive apartment. And I was sitting in this bunkhouse and, it, and it, there was one day that it got warm. It was like in March and it got warm. And all the mice came out of hibernation <laughs> and they were running everywhere in the bunkhouse. There were so many, they were running around on the floor. They were running up on the tables. I mean, there, there was like 20 mice visible at all times. And it was like one of those moments where it's like, man, I just left this kind of uh, high-end life in San Francisco. And I'm sitting here in the middle of the woods in this bunkhouse co- covered by mice you know, am I on the right track here? <laughs> this is this is such a reminder of Ryan's story of when he first the first night he slept here oh, uh, at Mariah property and the rain was coming through yeah. the roof yeah, and dripping so on him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. It's so similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 I was literally like, Oh geez, what did I what what kind of future did I just choose for myself? Like what have I bitten off now? Right, like it seems so romantic yeah. till my oh, it's a beautiful body got thought. soaking wet from the rain <laughs> coming through the roof. It's a beautiful idea, always a beautiful idea. The mice would be tough, that's tough. Well, I got cats now, uh. so it's okay. <laughs> wow, wow, lots of mice. Uh, what were the mice there to do? Well, you know, uh, one thing about East Creek is it has this really long history of people coming here and camping, uh, standing around, eating hot dogs, mm-hmm. and uh, the little crumbs and resources from hundreds of people every year coming out here with their snacks, uh, rep, you know, really supported a large mouse population. Uh, and the lack of, you know, and there's also lots of indoor facility, you know, just like lots of places for them to hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but those really weren't even the big problem. The big problem was the pack rats. Uh, those were the the real deal because they will like they like move nails and like crazy stuff, create huge piles of stuff in places you really don't want big piles of stuff. Uh, and that was the impetus to get cats. Is I had I had rats that I had been battling for two years. I called one of the rats Vinny, uh, short for Vincent uh, was this rat, and I had this ongoing battle with a rat called Vinny. Uh, that took two years. I had to get cats and raise them into warriors, and they got Vinny eventually. <laughs> to raise them into warriors. You had, you had to condition them to. Be- yeah, we do a training. It was kind of like the uh, Karate Kid scene uh, with the training mm-hmm. montage. Mm-hmm. A lot like that. Uh huh. Wax on, wax off. You're throwing heavier and they heavier stuffed like mice at your cats so they can build up their muscle to bat down that kind of aggression. That's right. Wow. Jeez. They were really tough. So the, does the history yeah. does the history of the of the facility appeal to you as much as anything else? Is it the nostalgia of the facility, or is it the continuation of the tradition that your mentor started? Like what what was the clincher for you to be like? I'm gonna leave Cush Corporate America at a posh apartment above a super tasteful restaurant across from Giant Stadium, and I'm gonna buy a steel baseball cap, and I'm gonna live with rats and have no connectivity, and I'm gonna try to chip away a living from something that traditionally does not afford people a very comfortable way of life. Oh, well, when you say you know, it like I that, think, well, no, but that's the yeah. that's once you pass the romance of I'm going to go into the woods and sure. be an artist, you yeah. know, it's like, I mean, like Walden, Walden ultimately sort of like broke, you know, him down to the degree where like he was like kind of a different person after that experience. It's like you're you're kind of putting yourself into a similar position. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I'm definitely a different person. It's funny you, you mentioned the steel hat. You know, when I was in uh, my other career, I looked a lot different. <laughs> you know, like I've, I have gone so far as to change my appearance and even affectation to uh, do business in our local community here, which is very rural. And, you know, it's a kind of a um, uh, natural resource-based economy in the logging. You know, so there's like some very certain kinds of attitudes and styles here that wearing a steel hat helps open uh, open a lot more doors uh, than a than a teeny weeny beanie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think uh, you know considering 
coming out here and the main reasons that uh, I found it important, uh, I think I, I looked to my own, well, probably there's two things. One is I looked to my own experience, which, you know, when I was in college, I came out here for the first time as an 18-year-old, but what I didn't mention was as a 19-year-old, my mom passed away. She had uh, had a long battle with multiple sclerosis and, uh, you know, but, you know, she had kind of died unexpectedly uh, in the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college. And so uh, when I came back, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time here in kind of a healing state and I was replenished by the place and the community and the forests and all the things that come together to make East Creek this uh, place that it is. And uh, so I knew that this, there was like this kind of uh, medicinal magic that uh, was here. It's, you know, kind of a thing, a, some kind of a um, magical thing that's hard to explain, but that when people come here, they, uh, you know, feel really good, feel a sense of uh, sublime, you know, probably a lot like when people come and uh, look at your, your, your trees on the Mirai property, uh, you know, this, there's, there's been that sense. And then the second uh, thing is when I was a freshman, I called in college, I called my, my high school ceramics teacher and I said, uh, Amy, um, finally we have an opportunity to wood fire because we had been looking to wood fire when I was a high school student and she had been looking to wood fire. And I called her and I said, hey, um, I finally found a, uh, an opportunity to wood fire. Would you like to come out and check it out? And she came out and met Nils who took a liking to her and invited her to bring her high school students, i.e. students from my own uh, alma mater to East Creek, and thus started a 10-year high school education program where we have uh, you know, up to 40 kids out here at once firing the kiln. Uh, and when I heard this news that uh, you know, bulldozers roll in 60 days and that this opportunity for the kids from my uh, my home community was going to go away and the kids from my uh, college alma mater was going to go away and that the um, community opportunity to fire was going to go away uh, it was it, in, a, in a way it felt like I had no option but to try to help that situation um, and but you know I was 27 years old and I had four thousand bucks. And so, you know, I was making a lot of money, but I was blowing a lot of my salary on being 27. Right. And I wasn't expecting, you know, I wasn't like in the market for this place or a thing like this. Um, but instead it was like, you know, uh, as a community, we uh, looked around and it was like, well, you know, who is in a position to, um, you know, kind of step up and make the, uh, do the hard stuff you know, it's going to be fun and easy eventually, but like do the hard stuff at first in getting back a hold of the property, putting a new roof on, redoing the power, burying cables and pipes, like all the unglamorous work, who is going to be the champion of that and, and do that stuff. And when we looked around, there was nobody else really that was in it to, uh, to make that leap. And so with the support of the community and uh, in partnership with my dad, Rick, uh, you know, we, uh, my dad uh, pitched in $40,000 uh, from his retirement fund. And I got laughed out of a number of banks, but finally first federal bank in McMinnville, a community bank, uh, I gave a presentation to a, you know, a, a bank manager. Uh, and they said, you know, this is a good loan. You guys, uh, you guys have and make enough money that even though it's a crazy business to loan on, we'll loan to you, you as people. Wow, <laughs> and, that's cool. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, and the, you know, there were, there were kind of many close calls along the way. Like uh, the day before we were due to sign, I had gotten no's from a half a dozen insurance companies. Mm -hmm. You can't initiate a loan without insurance. Mm -hmm. And so we almost derailed the whole thing because we couldn't get insurance on this place, which is a whole nother can of worms. But uh, at every turn, there's been this uh, tremendous community effort and, uh, you know, tremendous, um, you know, educational effort and institutional effort to both keep this place alive and to um, make things grow and bring more folks in and 
helped to raise the water level for ceramic education uh, in the state, which is really kind of our mission as we think about what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's amazing. That's so cool. That, no, I, it just gives so much context uh, to, to the significance of the facility, right? Which I, like Ira's told me quite a bit because Ira spent quite a bit more time with you in the East Creek facility. And I know Jesus came out and did a lot of filming and Miguel Miguel's been out there, you know? So like Mariah's is, is, is sort of weaving its way into East Creek and certainly trying to get a foothold. Yeah. yeah, Well, I mean (laughs) this, the, the way that you helped us out with the Triscoli project was just so incredibly huge. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying, bringing, the organ base of, of ceramics up like that's how we found you was mm-hmm. at the wood fire convention i don't know not well not quite a year ago i guess and we went out there with jan rentinar and she introduced us to you and you guys were organizing this event that is doing the same thing that you're saying bringing a larger community around presentations work on display vendor areas talks discussions it was really a great event well, thanks. I was really glad that you guys came. And it was really exciting because um, having the opportunity for more folks from kind of different worlds to come out and uh, get an understanding for what we're doing and what kind of traditions that we're accessing with the kiln. And also, you know, just bonsai and wood-fired pots have such a long history together. Yes. And for us to be out here just like bebopping along making mugs <laughs> and not having, you know, not having the connection with the, um, with the bonsai community, you know, that was kind of silly. Uh, so it was great to make that first step and to have, you know, the bonsai community to have a, to have somebody that can kind of help be an ambassador for the bonsai community, mm-hmm. just as, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be, and uh, others are in the wood firing world for the, wood-fired ceramic community uh you know that's huge what 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 does the wood-fired ceramic community look like because i know i know that um my experience with the ceramic community in general is one of and i'm sure there's exceptions to this but in general one of tremendous collaboration and sort of internal support and i've gotten nothing but the same impression from you in terms of what east creek is trying to do it doesn't appear as though you view other wood-fired kilns or other ceramicists using wood fire as their methodology for firing their ceramic work as competition. It seems like you view it as community, but I don't know. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great observation. And, you know, when we think about wood-fired kilns, um, you know, uh, we, we put 10 cords, 30,000 pounds of wood, into this kiln over five consecutive days and night. And it's therefore impossible, you know, I, I you know, it's, it, my name's on the paperwork, so I own this kiln, but it's a tool that I own but could never use by myself. And so this shared work, shared result uh, ethos that uh, is required to fire a kiln, like, you know, you can hire employees and create a whole thing around it, but the potters who build wood-fired kilns, the reason they do that is so that they can help to to develop and further community um and so i think that uh it's a it's the kind of thing that draws in people who are into community uh there are a number of wood-fired kilns that are uh fired that 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 do use employees and um that are kind of purpose built to make someone specific you know to make their work and, you know, that's, that's cool. Um, but other kilns and historically, uh, you know, th- th- this, this community uh, way of thinking has been, has been really important for a long time, but most of the community that we've seen uh, up until East Creek really started to come on the scene was um, groups of friends. So you had to get a personal invite from somebody um, you know, and you kind of had to be vetted and that there was kind of this like weird process to be initiated into the wood fire community. So once you're in, it's so great. And there's, uh, you know, all the kiln owners kind of know each other and there's this wonderful kind of itinerant potter 
um, community, the people that uh, work in their studios and, and then go from kiln to kiln to fire their work. And that's really cool. Um, but as we kind of looked over the landscape, you know, what we realized is that uh, all these closed communities are super important for potters that are making their work, uh, making their pots and selling their pots. And like what they do is make, or they produce wood-fired pottery and that's their practice. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of great opportunities for people to uh, dip a toe in, to get their foot in the door. And, uh, you know, East Creek has been that opportunity for so many students. But again, it was uh, group setting stuff. It was like, oh, we're going to have a group from Linfield come out. We're going to have these high school groups come out, kind of preformed groups. And we just took that community idea and just basically we just put a button on the Internet. And it said, hey, if you want to fire, click the button and go through a checkout process just like you're used to on any e-commerce website and then just show up with your pots mm -hmm. and you can come and join our community. And then if you're really good, you get really into it, then you'll meet other people and you'll get the invite to go and do other stuff too. And, you know, so uh, that was as we thought about buying the place and do, doing this thing. Uh, the idea that we could help to raise the water level for ceramic education in the state via providing a place for people to try out wood frying for the first time, uh, that was central to our thinking and, and uh, you know, how, how we've acted. And every, you know, we've been privileged in the sense that most of the actions that we take are mission-based actions. Like we don't have to, uh, or at least right now, we're not doing a lot of stuff that is off mission so that we can keep the lights on, mm -hmm. uh, which is huge. Hmm. Uh, you know, as recently as you know, when I got done with graduate school in 2019, I sold wine. I drove a limo. Uh, I did, I did whatever I could do to get the money to pay the bills right. of this, you right. know? And so now that we have uh, grown our community and provided this place for people to come and do their first, um, their, their first wood firing and some people now to do their first uh, throwing on the wheel or their first uh, touch of ceramics. Uh, now, now that we're in that place, we have more resources to share. Uh, and, the, and, you know, we uh, offer classes and we, then we can go and turn around and go to the local high schools for free and, uh, you know, help those guys uh, get exposed to ceramics in a way that they otherwise couldn't have. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot there. It's really, it's, it's super cool. I, there's like a lot of parallels, I think, to sort of how Mirai had to sort of scrap and claw to get where we're at and finding those ways to make it happen just because you believe in what it's all about. But I, I'm curious, you as an artist, because the, the other component of this is that you are a ceramicist and you do have a body of work that you have been historically pursuing you pursued a degree uh in ceramics and through this creation of this space to empower and facilitate everybody else's ceramics pursuit how has that impacted informed or potentially sacrificed to a degree your own ceramic body of work your own artistry and pursuit as a creative individual well, you know, that's a great question. And it's, uh, I think, like everything, uh, being in this position, if for me as an artist, is a double-edged sword. Uh, on one side, it uh, provides me access, basically priority access, to all the most amazing pools and connections, other studios. You know, I have this really wonderful opportunity to kind of like, I can kind of close my eyes and envision anything in uh 3d material and like i can either make it here or uh, i have a friend that can help me make it and that's really awesome um i think on the other side because i spend so much time on a computer making you know programming and writing grants and deciding making decisions working on uh developing uh the space and you know burying cables like somebody needs to dig a trench Usually I do the worst things. Uh, volunteers like to do yeah. the best things. Amen. And the owner likes to do the worst <laughs> right. things, you know? And gets so to. if it's like, uh -huh. gets to. if somebody is up to their waist in a trench, it's me. Uh -huh. It wasn't too long ago. I was digging out 
under a septic lines with a spoon. Uh, you know, so I think having those, uh, having those responsibilities makes it so that the focus, it's easy to lose focus on making work. Um, I'm lucky that a lot of what, a way that I found to make revenue here is to share my ceramic skills. I've been throwing pots for 22 years. And when I first sat down the wheel as a 13 year old, I had a knack for it right away. And I've, you know, and having, you know, I mentioned my mom had multiple sclerosis and that also made my um, kind of my high school years a little weird. And where a lot of my high school peers were out partying and doing fun stuff and having friends and girlfriends and all that, all those things that sound really great. I was in the garage making pots, mm. you know, and um, I, I didn't get out like my friends did. And my, you know, my home situation was loving and, and, and really good. But at the same time, it was so different from other kids that like my life looked different. And one of the ways that manifests was, um, you know, I would be, I was just home a lot. And so building those years of skills in hindsight, I thought I was going to like leave ceramics and go become wealthy in business. You know, that's when I left college, that was kind of what I decided I wanted to do. Um, but I, I realized in hindsight, as uh, I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, I'm like, you know, sitting there driving the limousine, trying to figure out how am I going to stop driving this limousine? Uh, it was like, oh, well, I could uh, teach people how to throw pots on the wheel. A lot of people want to learn that. And I'm pretty darn good at that. And so uh, through that kind of, uh, you know, my, my, the, the unseen hand of economics moved my focus to doing these, uh, these classes, but that also provides me the kind of space and time to make my own work. You know, while I do these demonstrations and talk to people, you know, really, uh, especially when, I, when we're doing advanced play work, what people really want to see is somebody who has a lot of years of experience executing like large or otherwise difficult to make works. And being that my specialty in throwing pots is, you know, I make big pots, um, you know, up to 60 inch, 300 pound, you know, kind of like wine amphora size things. Uh, You know, those have proved to be uh, skills that people are interested in uh, paying to learn. Uh, so that has also kind of focused my work. You know, I also like to make other stuff, but, um, the focus of my work today is improving those skills because I've realized that, um, there's a teaching niche for me and a workshop niche for me that, um, you know, people value those skills and they want to see them. And, um, you know, it's a lot easier to sell a, an experience, a weekend experience in Oregon's beautiful coastal mountains than it is to sell somebody a big old pot that they are going to have to store in their home. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so as we've thought about as a business gaining access to budgets um, that has, that has in a strange way uh, actually kind of furthered my practice in making these pots that were already the um, focus of my interest. Wow. Wow. And you don't have any, um, it sounds like you feel really good about that. Like you don't have any conundrums about, because you do often hear about artists, you know, sort of having this conundrum of sacrificing their, their, their artistry for the sake of economics or, uh, you know, doing other things when they would rather be really pushing their boundaries of creativity. It sounds to me like you made the mental gymnastic somersault of like twisting that into a real sort of uh, serendipity as opposed to looking at it and being like, fuck, this sucks, but it's what I got to do. So that's, uh, you know, and and I think there's a lot of creative people that are disgruntled by that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one kind of unique thing about this whole deal is that um, I see my role at East Creek and within the ceramics community as uh, I I should be here to share some of the things I learned from highly paid and experienced corporate managers 
on how to make businesses work and how to make organizations work. You know, I kind of like, uh, you know, went away to this other weird world and learned all this stuff. And now I can come and the biggest impact that I can have on the world really probably isn't through just like making beautiful works that people will see. It's helping to create systems and funnel resources to those who are able to make those beautiful works, but don't have that other skill set. And so from day one, working on this project, I knew that that was um, kind of my biggest differentiator as a business person and as an artist. And that was really important, you know, to, to accept that that was, that was my role. And, you know, I also, I think the, um, you know, you talk about artists selling out, especially potters. Um, As a potter, you often, if you do a lot of uh, craft fairs, um, you become a mug factory. And it's like, I, and the the actual reason I uh, got a business major and was going to go and do another career was in high school, my senior year of high school, this uh, famous potter came to my class, Don Sprague. And he has a teapot in the Smithsonian and is, you know, has lots of these like important markers of success as a studio potter. And he was doing this demo and he made his offhand comment. He's like, yeah, every time I think about like, should I get a cell phone? I think, well, how many mugs a month is this going to cost me? (laughs) And I was like, whoa, oh, no, no, no. Like that is, I cannot think like that. Like I do not want to be, if that's what being a potter is, I don't want to be a potter. Mugshot Monday. And so I, I think a lot of frustration, that rhymes with lots of frustrations that people have, which is, I love making this, but I can only sell that. So I make that all the time. Uh And uh, with my teaching practice, I don't actually have to compromise on what I get to make. I get to make what I, what I want. And then if people don't want to buy it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I'll keep it. And, uh, and I have, you know, like that's kind of been the case, but, and now of late, you know, you kind of, you can begin to, uh, form a reputation is like, Oh yeah, if you need a really big pot, you can call Joe Robinson. He, there's actually not that many people making those things. Joe's the one. And over the years that's uh, started to work out for me. And I've been actually starting to sell some pots and, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I shipped off a big pot in a wooden crate, like an Indiana Jones crate to New York. <laughs> and you know, it's like, it feels exciting to be doing stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I see potential there. We're looking for those big uh, Joe Robinson I, I, bonsai pots. That's what I'm saying. Well, that, you know, this summer I have um, a major section of time devoted to trying out making some big pots and uh, seeing how you guys like them. Mm-hmm. And we'll put them in that, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's that uh, kind of great spot in the, in the Anagama for that stuff. And, th- you know, one thing that's been awesome working with the Mirai team is uh, I've gotten a lot of education about what is good in a bonsai pot and what is not good and what, uh, what is wanted and what functionality is important. And, you know, so uh, all those things, you know, making bonsai pots, it seems like, oh, maybe that's you know, just a little dish, you know, how, how, how hard can it be? Oh, actually, there's lots of considerations. And if you just uh, just give it a try, chances are you're probably not going to actually have all the features that one needs, like the little wire holes. That's, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about those before. Right. <laughs> um, I guess those are uh, extremely important. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's always Ron Lang was the per uh he was the uh, head of the ceramics department at mica maryland institute of contemporary art and and he had this closeted bonsai ceramics pursuit for like a large portion of his career as a sculpture ceramicist and a professor of ceramics that he wouldn't share with his colleagues or his students, you know? And it's like funny to hear you talk about Don Sprague and going to this like mug factory and, and whatnot. Because Ron was always like, you know, he had, he went in, in the teaching direction and the professor direction, but he also had a really, a really incredible career as a sculpture ceramicist artist, uh, had a lot of his work shown in a lot of really prestigious places. Like you said, like what's the measure of, of success? But 
I remember coming back from Japan in 2010 and learning of Ron Lang, this guy making big pots that nobody else was making. And, you know, he could make rectangles and he could make these radical forms and interesting creative ideas. And every time I saw one of his pots, I was just like, God, that is so, it's so heavy. It's so not elegant. It's so not functional, you know? And then he really, over the course of the 13 years that we worked with Ron, I mean, by the end of his his bonsai ceramics, which he's now retired from ceramics entirely, which is really devastating to the North American bonsai community, by the end of it, he, he had sort of achieved, I would say, the upper level of bonsai ceramic nirvana where he could make any form that served every function and he was making forms nobody had conceptualized, right? Which which is really when the ceramic starts to guide the dance of, of the bonsai relationship. And there's not a lot of ceramicists in the world that have led that dance. Typically, the bonsai or the tree itself leads that dance. But I was really excited by multiple aspects of East Creek, uh, the facility being so close, it being such an open communicated communicative and collaborative environment um, of a multitude of artists, the fact that you yourself were an artist willing to help us out and work with us, but also that you had the skill set that you had, which is abnormal and something that's missing from the bonsai community. Uh, and then when we were able to sort of fire these works of these known bonsai ceramicists and seeing the cross-pollination of all of these creative ideas and stuff, and now talking with you and recognizing, you know, our, our paths and journeys have not been, um, have not been that different. And in fact, there's a lot of shared experience in, in what we've both been trying to do, having to do, and, and where we also want to be going with things. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's really, really cool. You know, Ira mentioned, uh, I have this thing that I like to do, and I, he mentioned that we share this, that when it's time to bust out the leaf blower, <laughs> we like to get the leaf blower on. <laughs> And you and I share this uh, this love of leaf blowing uh -huh. and herb appeal. I think uh -huh. that uh, it's really that's that's nirvana. Uh -huh. Yeah, it cleanses the soul. So just funny. To, what a funny just to get it all cleaned up and straightened up. I love I love yeah. straightening and organizing and. I'm the one, you know, I'm the one in the trench too. Like I, not, a, not alone yeah. because I've, <laughs> I, I've got a tremendous team around me, but oftentimes it's like when, when the dirty work's got to get done, you're typically the one, it's like, you can't, it's like being a general on the battlefield, you know, like you gotta be, you gotta be in the trenches with the troops, uh, just as much, if not more to keep, keep things headed in the right direction with the right kind of message and vibe. Um, and it sounds to me like you're just as interested in getting your hands dirty as, as, uh, leading the charge. Well, I'll be interested. I don't know if I'd, if I'd say that. Willing. I would Willing. like to hire this. Stuff if I'm being frank, I want to hire this stuff done with contractors, licensed contractors, beautiful word, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, licensed and bonded. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, yeah, no, you know, and it's, uh, <laughs> I, I read your, you know, I have, I have probably a lot more uh, kind of nuanced background on you from, you know, I read that uh, New Yorker article uh. and uh, you know, <clears throat> reading that I, I felt a lot of uh, things that resonated, you know, from the way that, you know, there's the kind of like super hierarchical uh, old school approach to learning. And then now you learn like that, but then now we have to turn around and teach to a society that's totally different. So like none of those, methods that were used to teach me at least in ceramics really are super appropriate for me to use to teach sure. others. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, reading your story that that resonated with me a lot because, you know, Nils was a really wonderful and nice guy, but he, you know, he, he gave me a lot of crap mm -hmm. and the best compliment he ever gave to me about a pot that I made is he said, this is okay. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. High praise. Yeah. You know, and but that was cool. And that was why I liked it. You know, it was that that served yeah. me. It served me and it was right for me. But I also recognize that like people don't want that. Yeah. It doesn't serve people now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh not everybody needs to wade through that kind of you know, mental warfare to get to the point where it's like a productive and positive thing to be engaging with whatever that medium is that allows them to tap into 
uh, some aspect of self-expression or, you know, what, whatever the purpose is of working with uh, art or creative medium. I, I, I totally agree. But I do think like, and maybe you feel the same way, like that worked for you. It worked for me the way that my apprenticeship transpired. Um, I went there seeking that. So that was where it, it, it was. Mr. Kramura met me with the intensity that I went there to pursue bonsai with and that I probably needed to get to the level that I aspired to get to, which is what I asked him for, you know? So it's like, yeah, I, I certainly would not have become as capable at bonsai as I am without that. And I recognize that. And so it's like some people want to be as capable as you are in the ceramic world, you know, and some people want to be as capable as I am in the bonsai world. And it's like, can you can you get to that? I, I, I've always wondered this in the same way. And I, I was listening to a professional athlete talk about this. Like they looked at Michael Jordan and they said, you know, this guy's whole life is dedicated to competition to the degree that he sacrificed virtually everything, you know, and I think you could probably look at any super high level performer you worked in silicon valley in the tech world or at least you were in san francisco and that you know, financial marketing uh corporate business world where you probably saw high performers that really didn't potentially have much of a life outside of what they were doing even though they may have had a family they may have had interests and hobbies but i'm i'm assuming that a lot of that was sacrificed and certainly for my master mr kimura i did look at his personal life. I did look at his family dynamic. I did look at his, you know, life outside of bonsai. And it was, and, and all of those were super compromised for this pursuit of excellence in this singular act. And when I was listening to this athlete talk about Michael Jordan, his question was, could Michael Jordan have been Michael Jordan with a different approach? And certainly as a, as that individual, Michael Jordan probably wouldn't have been Michael Jordan without a, that approach. Could somebody else be as great as Michael Jordan without approaching it like Michael Jordan did, right? That's the, that's the more, um, I think, appropriate question to be asking. And I've wondered this the entire time. Could, can, could I reach the level of bonsai that my master did with, while having um, a healthy family unit? You know, could I reach it while not necessarily creating conflict in the relation, business relationships or collaborative relationships? Could I not isolate myself and, and be, you know, I've wondered this from the very beginning of leaving my apprenticeship. And I just determined that I didn't want to live that life that, you know, do you sacrifice what you want to achieve as an individual to lead a more balanced life overall? I didn't look at the reality of excellence as being worth it. And maybe that's where I won't ever be as good as Mr. Kimura is, or, you know, maybe that's where this athlete asking this question will never be as great as Michael Jordan is. But like, I would also like to believe that there is a way in which you could be as great in whatever measurable metric that could be while also not having some sort of completely lopsided existence uh, in the pursuit, you know? And it's like, Pretty hardcore question to ask yourself when you are aspiring for excellence in your in your chosen craft. Yeah, and I think especially when the body is involved, you know, where it's like, oh, well, you want to shoot three free throws? Go shoot a thousand. Mm -hmm. Go shoot ten thousand. Yeah. And you know, with, and I think that's kind of where maybe where the um, this the world building, this you know, studio and community building, I think you can um, you can be really effective with your mind and with experience in that way. But, you know, there is some part of me that's like, well, if you want your body to do something, like you got to put in the time. Yeah. And if you, you want to run, you got to run. And if you want to shoot, you got to shoot. Mm -hmm. And if you want to throw pots, you got to throw straight pots. up. Is there a shortcut? I mean, you keep, you, it's like, if Joe wants to be the best pot thrower, then you got to throw as many pots as you can physically throw, you know? And it's, I, yeah, I mean that's it's. I would posit that at this moment, if in the arc of my experience, mm -hmm. that if you know when it comes to the execution with clay, of bringing something from your mind into the world from a lump of clay in a wheel, the more times you've done that, the better it's going to mm -hmm. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think one of the beautiful things too about where we're at at this point in the world and the sharing of creative information via technology and the channels that exist that have not existed to date 
is is there is more of an exercising of the mind and there is more a, of a collaborative creative power that exists in the community of shared information yeah. now does that create the same degree of greatness does that create the same commitment to a body of work and a style that you massage and vet over an entire career. I know in architecture, it's like a big conversation of like the Bauhaus movement or the art deco style. None of the architectural styles of the modern time are being exercised to the degree where they get down to the essence of that style. Is that going to be the same thing as the ceramic body of work, you know, is there going to be a, a generational mid-century modern ceramic body of work? Is there going to be a generational uh, North American bone size style that lives on and is referenced and rec- I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know about all of that, but I do think there are different opportunities that are presented to us in the modern era of shared information and creativity that potentially do change that conversation a little bit, or at least that's what I'm banking on and hoping for, right? Because ultimately what it took to do what my master did or Michael Jordan did or anybody else that has achieved that kind of greatness is is probably not the same thing that a lot of people are willing to do now. Well, I think there's a, a, a probably also a big uh, question about focus and, you know, I think back to, you know, my own time of, you know, being in the trenches learning pottery, I wasn't tempted to go scroll Instagram mm-hmm. like I am today mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, and I think uh, educators that I've spoken with, especially ones that have been in uh, educating in ceramics for a long time, like, oh yeah, like there was kind of this one year where everything changed. And that was the year where like the kids that grew up with technology kind of hit their classes and it was like, and those kids, uh, they're different. They have a different style and, uh, you know, it's not a value judgment necessarily, but it is a recognizable thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and I wonder in the context of basically a quicker turn information society, like, you know, interest being compressed to a degree where like long periods of focus, you know, like, Oh, I sit down for four hours and focus on this one thing. There's less and less of that. Uh, that people do, I think, in general. And so in the face of that, I wonder, you know, what does work look like? And, you know, you think back to like, you know, think about like, uh, uh, like Chinese porcelain from uh, antiquity that it's like, okay, well, these people, you know, a lot of these people like almost worked like under slave-like conditions. You know, they're, they're, they're working 12 hours a day, every day since they're six years old. And then they're in their 40s making these pieces. It's like, well, yeah, probably there, there's a level of craft there that maybe even shouldn't be <laughs> able to emerge. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, now we're different. And so now the current masters, it's like, oh, well, I worked really hard. And it's like, well, but you didn't work hard like those right. guys did. And so now we say, oh, the young generation, they're not working hard. And it's like, well, yeah, they're just not working hard like you're used to working hard. Right. And so what does work, what does ceramic become and what does bonsai become in the face of that new paradigm? Uh, that's a, that's a bleeding edge question oh, that I'm interested in. I love in. it. I love it. Yeah. What an engaging uh, conversation and thought process. Cause this is, yeah, it's not exactly your typical way that people tend to think about it. There aren't a lot of people that are like sort of exploring these uh, strands and threads of things. And you do look at the changing necessities, but I, I can't help but like pull the conversation back to just like this 40 foot onagama that you have on site at East Creek and thinking about, you know, the onagama kiln and you are, are, are obviously far more well-versed in what the purpose of an onagama kiln was. But back in the day, an onagama kiln was was a, a village's way to fire the usable things that they stored food in, they ate food off of, they drank clean whatever liquid from, you know, it was like it was a, a, a centrifuge of of life and and of sustainability and of existence in uh, a settled, cultivated society. Uh, do you feel like in some ways there's a metaphorical connection to the purpose of your onagama kiln in the more modernized way of life now? Well, uh, you know, I do. And I think uh, you can say no you know, too. A, you could say it's a bigger no. village. Yeah, I was. Well, 
I mean, I guess, of course, the um, the technology need has changed. You know, there's this, there's this interesting thing of like, you know, the East Creek Onagama is um, a ninth century Korean design that came through Japan. And uh, the, the Onagamas were so important to the prosperity of a society that one society would go and kidnap the kiln builders from another society and force them to build them kilns because this technology was so transformative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, you know, we, now that we're in this position where like we have metal and glass and all these things that are the product of our first being able to get stuff really hot. Um, And so now we have this piece of technology that is basically a relic of that and that then, so the utilitarian and community nature then shifts from, oh, this techno, we need this technology in order to live comfortable and healthy lives, to we need this technology to facilitate healthy spiritual connections to our work, our world, and to each other. Mm-hmm. And that this is an outlet in this, you know, the, our technology has created a world of more abundance and leisure. And that, um, you know, given that we have the time and bandwidth to engage cultural things and pleasure and aesthetic, and that we're not just focused on trying to not die, um, that this, that the kiln, uh, in, in the context that we use it in our community, is that, uh, that connection and a connection to the shared work, shared result ethos that, you know, really isn't around. There's so much celebration at least in american culture on individual achievement um and to have this thing where it's like well you know actually no one person can really do it all here and without the night shift people and without the morning shift people and all these all these different roles without this this just simply wouldn't work uh you know i think that relying on another person or other people who you don't know with your important work that you spend a lot of time and you really care about you know, I think that that's the thing to me that um, is really important about continuing this firing tradition uh, that, that we have here. Badass. That's so cool. That's badass. Yeah, it's really it is really cool to reframe the concept of the significance, but to still have so much um, value beyond sort of the 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 byproduct of it right it's like the the meaning of the kiln still holds so much value and i think it it, i think that could be lost on people that aren't as deep in it as you are uh and that's something that i've come to really realize and we talked about the collaborative nature of the ceramics community it's like you still see a lot of that old world significance still to to the pursuit of it you know and for us it's like the Bonsai started out as being a way for people to, in the built environment, you know, back in China, carry with them some of those religious concepts or spiritual experiences of the wilder places to bring those home, not forget them, be reminded of these concepts greater than the sense of self, right? And and you could say, is bonsai important now? And it's like, well, bonsai is more important now than ever before in my mind as we grapple with this loss of our relationship and valuing of the natural environment and these elements that really created who we are as a culture, as an individual, as a as a, a, a sense of spirituality or whatever other component you could say the native environment you know, beyond a resource has, has conveyed upon us as the residents of that space. Uh, and so I, I, I really appreciate what you just said, because I can only hypothesize what that must be like, but you put it so eloquently into words that, that modernize that value system around what you're doing. And the fact that you can draw those connections is probably a rare skill set in itself. Well, I, I mean, th- you yeah, know, thank you. Um, you know, and I, but I, I appreciate the the way that we both kind of approach, and I think anybody can, you know, uh, see the value and say, well, you know, isn't it good for people to be around trees, mm-hmm. and isn't it good for people to circle up around a campfire? You know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that's really those are connective things. Like those are important connective things, and really, that's what we're each doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like facilitating people being amongst the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm facilitating people gathering around a gathering around a fire and exchanging, you know, just like the, the, um, you know, hunter gatherers that first figured out how to make fire, 
you know, like the time that they would exchange ideas and really, you know, culture, the, the, the spark of culture uh, was in the firelight, you know? And so I think that that it's, it's, it reaches back into a place in us, just like being in the forest that is um, central to what we are as human animals. You know, and I think that's pretty cool. Very cool. Very, very cool. Joe, I hope this is the first of many conversations, and I, th- I think it probably is for us. But, um, you know, to this point, certainly the relationship we've been forming with East Creek and with you and the people around you and stuff has, has been of huge value to us. And we're, I think we're only just scratching the surface. But um, I do appreciate you taking the time today, and, uh, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for what you're doing for the ceramic community via bonsai, you know, um, you're an ambassador for the trees first and foremost, but you're also an ambassador for ceramic and, uh, that's, that's really important too. Nice. So, uh, good, good on you. Keep we'll it keep up. doing it. We'll keep doing it. Yeah. Let's keep yeah. moving forward, man. East Creek good deal. art. Where, do, where does everybody got to find you? East Creek art, East Creek ceramics. You can, you can find us at eastcreek.org. Uh, and you can, there's a start here button, which I recommend. And you can also see us on Instagram. I'm East Creek Joe. And there's also East Creek Art. Uh, so, yeah, c- check us out. Where, see some pics. Where, where do we book uh, the limo service that you're offering? <laughs> That's one of the things I was most interested and in. And purchase wine. Those, those yeah, the two, wine and the limo. Things, what yeah. is that? Do you still offer that? Uh, you know, I highly recommend the entire Yamhill Valley winery uh-huh. um, section. If you uh, if you go to Carlton, Oregon, there's the Carlton Winemaker Studio. They have a variety of – it's a shared winemaking space. Huh. Really good stuff in there. Nice. You're going to love uh, it. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll make a date. Well, good luck with uh, whatever septic line spoon digging or uh, chainsaw cutting or mouse uh, eradication. It's chainsaw it, today. I got a I got a maple down. Yeah, yeah. We're we're about ready to engage with a heavy dose of watering when we leave you. But uh, Joe, we'll stay in touch, man. Good luck with everything. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers, All guys. Right.